1: Welcome, listeners, to episode 54 of the Ad Nauseam podcast. My name is Dr. Jeff Winkle, and I am here in the vomitorium with my good friend and co-host, Dr. David Noy. How are you doing, Dave, tonight?
0: I'm so glad you asked, Jeff. I'm doing well.
1: How do you like this this cool, late summer, early fall weather?
0: It's beautiful. Isn't it nice? Yes, walking over here this evening to the vomitorium, I could feel... The crispness in the air, mm-hmm. there's a hint of autumn on its way. Yes. And uh, those of you who live in places with, you know, multiple seasons, we count four at this point. It's just so nice to see them change, mm-hmm. the leaves fall. Now the days grow short. They do. Yeah. But uh, we've got Thanksgiving to look forward to. I think we have a Thanksgiving themed quote really near the end of the episode if I'm not mistaken. Today, you don't remember. I don't remember. No. You didn't read the script. I
1: read the script, but uh, I only. You take wrote it most half of, of it. <laughs> <laughs> so we have we, we have a quote that's going to look forward to Thanksgiving. Kind of. Okay. Yeah. All
0: right. But yeah. what are we doing tonight? Tonight, this D- is... did I ask how you are? Um, you didn't. I don't usually. No, but you don't. Let's do something different this evening. Yeah. How are you? I'm feeling great. Uh-huh. I mean,
1: like you, I'm loving this weather. Like um, walking into the vomitorium, we looked up in the clear sky, seeing all kinds of constellations twinkling mm-hmm. up there. Like, that 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 smell of that that sweet decay. Of the, the, of the sweet decay. The sweet decay of the of the, is the your cologne the or. <laughs> that would make a that would make a nice uh, a nice. That's a good uh, name for a cologne, isn't scent. It? Sweet decay.
0: Sweet decay. No,
1: the you know the the leaves is the okay. You get, you get a hint of that on the air. Some must. Yes, exactly. That is very nice. So, I love I love fall. Mm-hmm. It tends to be short, and you're it's a hit or miss around here. But when fall is glorious, there's nothing like that. You're it. right. Yeah. What about the, hayride? the hay ride? The We're talking about hay rides. I don't like hay rides. No, no, it's not a hay riding night. No, tonight's a night for bonfire, for some uh, cider, cider, maybe some pumpkin spice donut That'd holes, be really or something nice. like that. But I, I was never a fan of the hay ride. Never kind of got that. Let's move slowly in a wagon with scratchy straw, lurch around, lurch
0: around, maybe get some chaff on your back.
1: Exactly, lots of lots of lots of chafing, mm-hmm. um, discomfort. But uh, maybe back in uh, junior high, with right. the, the point was to, you know, kind of awkwardly. Flirt with girls and, right. and and vice versa. Yeah, be yeah.
0: be close to a member of the opposite sex without any
1: pressure, kind right. of. Exactly right. Yeah, mm. but but uh, never was a big fan of the hayride.
0: You don't think we could get an episode out of that, do you?
1: Uh, I mean, how would we work that into uh, the classical? I don't theme? know.
0: We've been talking about the ad nauseum trip to Greece. Yes. Right. Right. Uh, planning that, hoping to get that going for next May. Mm-hmm. Still in the works. We could do something preliminary, like a you know a get to know you event, like a. <laughs> Trip to Greece bonding event. That like we, we pile all the side. Stack some lobes, maybe along so you know, the the green and red books, stack some lobes along one side. And yeah. Just all lurch, around, lurch around, around together.
1: These, these tiny books flying <laughs> off into the woods as we go around a turn. Yeah. Hey, team that. team building. <laughs> well, I, Exactly right. That would be memorable.
0: Yeah. yeah, I'd be up for that. People want things that are memorable. So don't a pre-trip they? hayride, right? Just to break the ice. Yes, exactly. I like it. So maybe we could even make a kind of an offer. You sign up to go on the ad nauseum Greece tour next May, mm-hmm. you get a free hayride.
1: Ooh, I like that. Yeah, Man. I, we're gonna get we're gonna get people. You think so? People uh, flocking
0: well, into this. Yeah. Given my rural agricultural background, I have connections.
1: You do. You could set us up with. Like premium hay ride. I know people with hay. <laughs> yeah.
0: And and yeah. they're not gonna bail on me. I know <laughs> Oh
1: them. man. So I, I felt like this whole thing was a setup
0: for that moment. No. Right <laughs> no well we better get on to we some should. actual we classics. Should.
1: Exactly. So uh, let's get to the shout-out this evening. So the shout-out this evening goes to one William Frost. Yes. Yes, a a frequent listener to the podcast. Uh, He tells us he received a BA in classical languages from Marquette University fairly recently, just a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. He is currently working on an MA in ancient Greek at um, Colorado University, Boulder. Right. And his interests are wide and varied, but he's particularly fond of all things ancient Greek and later Latin. Um, and especially uh, Renaissance and early modern period.
0: That is very broad.
1: Very broad, yeah.
0: Now, given the time of year and the season we've been talking about, this wouldn't be Jack's brother, would it?
1: Jack Jack Frost? I'm not exactly sure who who Willie, William Bill is, is related if to. If he yeah. has
0: any fraternal relation right, exactly. by that name.
1: Right, right. I, okay. I don't know. I don't know.
0: we got to deal with a few. Uh, so I guess we should say thank you, thank William, you, for being course. a faithful listener. He's yes. also sent in some wonderful suggestions, I'd like to say. He has. He's been listening quite a while. Uh, picked himself up a sticker, actually. Excellent. Showing that he's taking in the classics.
1: And keeping them down.
0: That's right. Yeah.
1: So um, I would say super fan status.
0: Yeah, oh, sure. Okay, we, do we have, Do we have levels yet?
1: Well, that's, that's coming. That's
0: coming. Yeah. Everything's levels. It's in committee right now. We'll oh, see what right. happens. Yeah. Uh, we're getting a lot of good uh, listener feedback. I'd like to mention just a little bit more here. You remember, I don't know how long ago it was, but we were talking about what we should be called. Should we be called popularizers? Oh, right, right. This was a Victor Davis Hanson bit we spoke of. Popularizers or vulgarizers, and I think VDH said he likes extenders. Extenders. He should be an extender. We decided Yeah, that's no good. You no, know, that sounds like a kind of way to keep your pants on. <laughs>
1: exactly, right. Exactly. Every year my pants need another <laughs> extender. Right. But I mean, I mean we were saying that uh we agreed with Hansen that where the classics, uh, if they're going to thrive and survive, it's going to be with the popularized.
0: Someone right? has to work to make them accessible. Exactly.
1: Right. That's what we're trying to do here. We're trying. But we need a better term.
0: And so one of our other loyal fans, uh, loyal listener, former student, I can never pronounce his last name. The first name is Michael. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think it's just, it's it's Krog. Krog? Yeah, I think it's Krog. I think you'd get that G in there. It's not There's an Krog. H on the end. It, there is an H. You leave that alone. It's All Krog. right. Yep. And
0: he says, um, you should be called Embiginers. No, that I like. I like it too. It's a,
1: a Simpsons reference. <laughs> it is. It's yes.
0: from uh, the episode called Lisa the Iconoclast. So the I did a little bit of research, right? Yeah. I recognized the of course, the reference right away, but mm-hmm. the, the research, I wasn't sure. Uh, in this particular episode, um, Lisa finds out that the founder of Springfield, a man named Jebediah Springfield, yes. turned out to be kind of a fraud. Right, but right, his right. catchphrase is, a noble spirit embiggens the smallest man. <laughs> so that's really what we're about here. We
1: are embiggeners. We're
0: trying to embiggin people's approach to the classics. Yeah,
1: that's good. I think we'll stick with that for now. It's way better than... Then what was it? Extender. Extender. I was, was going to say widener. That's even worse. Broadener. Broadener and all of those. Uh, no, distasteful. No. But in okay. beginners, I like it. I yep. like
0: it. And uh, we got some other suggestions too. I just, are we ever going to get to Lucretius? I I don't know. We'll but, get there. All right. Uh, a gentleman named Mark Muth, who's listening to us uh, out in the Baltimore area, mm-hmm. and uh, he's gotten his own shout out, but he, he was saying that he really in, enjoyed the Lucretius episodes. He's looking forward to the fourth. And he said, uh, here's some suggested titles, other titles you might Ooh. want to use. Okay, what do we got? Uh, he said, The Answer Key. The
1: Answer Key? Yeah. Okay.
0: I, I think that's good. Or maybe All the Answers.
1: All the Answers.
0: Yes. As alternative titles, we've done things like um, What What the Cat Dragged In mm-hmm. was one of them. Also, as the replacements for The Really Exciting on the Nature of Things. Yeah.
1: Boring. <laughs> what were some of the
0: others? Uh, the ones that we... Hitchhiker's bl- Guide to the Galaxy. galaxy. Yep. Yeah. Um, something by Seuss. All oh, the it? places you'll go. No, that, no, that, wasn't, wasn't, that ho- wasn't. Hop on pop. I think. <laughs> uh, but he said the answer key or all the answers. Okay. Uh, yeah. And then another gentleman that we both we both know. He's gonna get his shout out later. A Dan. We'll leave his his last name to later. Yes. Uh, he said we had a near miss with uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. A near miss. Yeah, he said we should have gone with another Douglas Adams title, which is Life, the Universe, and Everything. Oh, right, 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 right. So I don't know anything about Adams, but right. that's a good title.
1: Excellent, though. <laughs> yeah. Another one of his books from the same series uh, has the best title of all, though I don't think it works here. So Long and
0: Thanks for All the Fish? So Long and Thanks for All the Fish? Fish. That's yeah. just absurdism. It isn't is absurdism. It? Yeah, there's right. a lot of
1: that throughout the, his, uh, hmm. his
0: novels. Is yeah. it funny, like Stephen Wright kind of absurdism?
1: It's. <laughs> I don't know if Wright's the best corollary, but it is. It's the humor is absurdist, and it's it's one of those things where you either love it or you just scratch your head.
0: Well, Wright is one of the funniest comedians. I agree. I was thinking about one of his uh, gags on the way over. Oh, really? Yeah. Instead of a, um, I think this is Stephen Wright. Maybe it's Jack Handy, but uh, instead of a trap door, how about a trap window? And if you lean over too far, you fall out. <laughs> Wait, that's a real window. <laughs> You've heard that one, haven't I you? I haven't.
1: That's definitely that's definitely Stephen Wright. Okay.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, we better get into the content here.
1: Yes. We're a little bit overdue. Yes.
0: Uh, maybe too much light, not enough erudite. Well, let's get down to some erudition. All
1: right. we, uh, Dave, will you tackle the opening quote?
0: Yes, I can do that. Okay. This is not our erudition. This is the brilliance of Jean Biagio Conte from his work, Latin Literature, uh, page 170. Lucretius shows that he possesses a wide knowledge of Greek literature, As evidenced by the echoes of Homer, Plato, Aeschylus, the picture of Iphigenia, and Euripides, the whole description of the plague at Athens in Book 6 is based, of course, on the Thucydidean account. We're going to talk about that. Mm -hmm. Nor are signs lacking of familiarity with the sophisticated Hellenistic poets like Callimachus and Antipater. But the most distinctive feature of Lucretian style is concreteness of expression, plainness, and liveliness of description— The visible, perceptible quality of the things discussed, the corporeality of the imaginary, these features of the presentation are, as the poet himself several times declares, effects almost entailed by the lack of a pre-existing abstract language for expressing ideas and giving philosophical form to his discourse. Paradoxically, the expression, as if compensating for that poverty, derives from this an advantage— It comes alive to fill the verbal vacuums by recourse to a vast range of explanatory images and examples. The result is a severe style, capable of harshness and elegance, disposed to emotion and wonder, but also to prophetic invective, yet always grandiose without ever losing itself in pomposity and empty magniloquence.
1: Wow, that's some purple prose there. It from, is. From GB. It yeah, is, yeah.
0: as translated by Sadalo, right? This was written in Italian first.
1: Right. so Right, right, of course. But
0: right. uh, tremendous admiration for Lucretius' yeah. style, an admiration I share. It's, yeah. It's good poetry. It uh, underlines or highlights the theme once again that Lucretius is going to line the rim of the cup with honey so that this strong medicine of uh, don't fear death and don't fear the gods, because religion is uh, bunk, mm-hmm. that medicine can go down easier.
1: Right, exactly. As I was looking over the stuff for t- today's episode, it struck me that Conti says that without ever losing itself in pomposity, I think he teeters... You don't a- necessarily agree with I that? I don't. He teeters on the edge, but what I see, is not so much pomposity, but it's it's so clear to me that Lucretius is reveling in the fact that he's Maybe not necessarily saying things that nobody has said before, but he's saying them in a way that nobody's done before. Right. And he's having a great
0: time. Yes, I think there. it occurs to me just now that Lucretius, and I'm sure it has occurred to some better scholar before, but Lucretius is a nice counterpoint to Ovid because mm. Lucretius is is proud, it seems, of his innovation, he's, his ingenuity. I'm the first one to channel Epicurus to the Romans Uh, And he's my hero, but I'm doing something important, too, because you've all been kind of lost. So even though he's tearing down the organized religion of his day, he has a real religious fervor and zeal in doing it. Right. Which is genuine and authentic, but a little bit ironic. Whereas Ovid, you read a lot of Ovid, brilliant poet but you would be hard-pressed to say he has any conviction. Right. Yeah. Whatsoever. No,
1: that's I, that's really well said, right? I mean it would be so nice to have something else by Lucretius that we could you know, read this against. Yes. You know, we have we have more from Ovid, we have a better sense of kind of, right. you know, his um his breadth of, as a poet. Yes. Um
0: the only times I think you really that I have been able to develop true compassion for Ovid is when he's talking about himself.
1: His like his his sad letters from right. from exile. Yes, his right. tristia
0: or his um Things from from Pontus. Yeah. Then there's true emotion there, but when he's talking about other people, it's really just all at their expense. And, yeah. Uh, so maybe there's a, a, you know a point of contact with Lucretius in that. It mm-hmm. doesn't seem. Neither of them seem like very compassionate individuals. No. Honestly.
1: No. I got the sense too from reading this stuff for today that I mean, this question I keep coming back to is like, who is this for? Mm-hmm. You know, and some of it is is almost too clever by half. I mean, he can, is he just writing for his his literary circle mm-hmm. he's writing to entertain the kind of this small group of elite individuals and you know this isn't a this isn't a conversion text for the masses
0: well i think that's true but i don't believe he's writing only for his contemporaries it's not a conversion text for the masses it's for a, a particular kind of person who can be initiated into this special wisdom okay but i think he means it you know for posterity right just like Thucydides ends his history with you know I've created something ace ia for the ages right it's clear Lucretius believes he's done that now whether his missionary zeal has led him to believe that anyone will really embrace his ideas that's not clear to me
1: yeah nor, nor I but it's <laughs> he's he's clearly just having a, a, a blast with this kind of theory of everything right it, it's a, it's a, it's it's astounding how much he crams in these last books i mm-hmm. mean this this theory of of the, the swerving and, and curving and, and clashing atoms right. explains everything right and so it's you know explains the planets explains uh romance mm-hmm. explains uh, plague disease everything mm-hmm. yeah so um i just think he's having um it just i don't know i was wondering does he have his tongue in his cheek at, at any any point but it, it's hard to see that when he's he's you know, lifting up epicurus himself as almost as a godlike figure right right better
0: than hercules better than uh bacchus better than Ceres. better than bacchus wouldn't be wouldn't be wouldn't be a bad title for this episode okay? <laughs> <laughs> yeah good title for a band
1: better than but ba- well, you have better than ezra
0: never yeah. heard of them
1: oh really okay you've probably heard a couple of their songs i hope not yeah <laughs> not with
0: that name Wash my ears out.
1: Oh, man. Judging books by covers. You betcha. Okay, I, I hear you. All
0: right, Jeff. So as we get started, we're looking at book four, and uh, you're going to read us some lovely hexameters. Is that right?
1: I am. This is from, um, not right at the beginning of the book, but uh, a few lines in. All right. Sed quoniam docui cuncta rexordia rerum, qualia sint et quamwari is distantia formis, spante suwawo litenta eterno tu quoque modu posit res ex his quaeque creari very nice lovely stuff yes you
0: you enjoying that poetry
1: i do it's you know it's been so long since i've i i i've read it or or taught it so it's i love coming back to that it's It's
0: spending some time with an old friend it is it's great stuff so you were saying to me last week that as I was reading some of the Latin during the episode, my mm-hmm. mood seemed to improve.
1: Yes. Yeah. The same for you? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I see that when when and I hear that when you read, it kind of, it's something comes over you.
0: Yeah, it's yeah. beautiful. It's, it's musical. It's beautiful
1: stuff. It's, it's, uh, it's fun.
0: Very nicely done. Thank you. So, shall I read a little bit of uh, a translation here? Yes. Okay. So, this is from the Inglert translation. Um, another one of the, the texts that Hackett, I know the ads come later, but... <laughs> Another one of the texts that Hackett loaned us uh, for this episode. So this is a verse translation, unlike the prose translation uh, from Smith that we've been reading. So here it goes. But since I have shown of what sort are the beginnings of all things and how differing in their various shapes, they fly around on their own, stirred up by eternal motion, and how from them all things are able to be created. Now I will begin to treat for you what closely relates to these things, that there exist what we call likenesses of things, which must be termed, so to speak, films or bark, because the image bears an appearance and shape like that thing, whatever it is, from the body of which it is said to be shed and wander forth.
1: Hmm. It, it, um, it strikes me that, I mean, Lucretius, this works pretty well. It reminds me of a lecture, Okay, you know, where you... You out. You lay out some material, mm-hmm. and then you stop, and you kind of briefly summarize yes. before going on to the next bit.
0: Spoken like an experienced teacher.
1: Yeah. So he's saying, "This is what I've shown you, right? This is what I've already proved, right? And now we're going to take it a little bit further."
0: Yes. Yeah. So go back and look at slide seven. Yes. Right. Exactly. That's the reference point. Now here on slide eleven, let's extend the argument a little bit further.
1: Right. So here, he, so he talked. We talked last week about. The, the clashing of atoms producing, mm-hmm. you know, everything that you see in the mm-hmm. material world.
0: As they fall through the void.
1: Right. And now he's going to talk about, this reminds me of your cereal box metaphor yeah. from last time, the, the sloughing off of things already made, producing yet more things. Yes. Yeah.
0: So what do you do in that case? What? When you get to the bottom of the bag, do you pour out all the little crumbled atoms and... Slurp those down in the bowl, or no, do you just that, toss them out?
1: That that, that grosses me out. Actually. Really? Yeah, exactly. Right. Like, I, I please tell me you're not one of those people who, like, when you're done with your seal, you like drink the milk from the bowl. <laughs> oh, that's horrifying! Horrifying. S- I, I I'm, I'm Wha- the, What? The Hebe's just thinking about it. Why? I don't know. It's just so disgusting to me for some reason. <laughs> so I associate the dandruff at the bottom of the bag with that. So huh. I can't deal with it.
0: It's a good image, though, of the Adams, I think. It is. I don't mean to be self-congratulatory, but yeah. your positive response to it yeah. caused me to think about it throughout the week a little bit.
1: I thought about it a lot this, this week, too. Every Mostly time at I, breakfast. <laughs> every, every time I pulled down the frosted mini-wheats. Oh, uh-huh. wow, man.
0: So it's very you, Lucretian. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that I was eating frosted mini-wheats this week, too. <laughs> it's Kismet. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You're thinking of Kashi, aren't you? Kashi? What's Kismet?
1: Kismet is just like, oh, it's a strange, wonderful coincidence.
0: Serendipitous. Serendipitous. But you don't take... You're not the one who takes all the... The fluff at the bottom and slurps it down? No. What do you do with it? I, I toss it out. Hmm. It goes out with the rest of the garbage where okay. it belongs. So because... the atoms fall through the bag. Mm-hmm. They collect at the bottom after they smash together. But they're falling through the void, the vacuum, right? Yeah. And uh, there is no fixed bottom to the universe. Right. So they just keep falling forever.
1: Keep falling forever. Right. And... and... Uh, coming together, breaking apart, mm-hmm. and I mean, he's Lucretius is setting up, uh, saying that you know, not only does this explain things like rocks and trees and whatever you see mm-hmm. and touch, but things that you don't see, uh, yes, yeah, dream, or things that you know you don't see in waking life, a dream, yeah,
0: things that are um, not visible but are material, yes, that's right. the key,
1: right, right. So he would have a problem with describing a dream as being immaterial. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. All things are material. It can be explained by the same process.
0: Right. And, of course, you know, the reductionist view of the human mind, every emotion, every thought, every joke, every impulse can be reduced to a chemical interaction, Mm -hmm. is very consonant in some ways with the Lucretian worldview. Right.
1: Oh, absolutely. In some
0: sense, his view of the world has become regnant. Yeah. It's won the day, Yeah, for sure.
1: It's very much a materialist, secular, humanist way of viewing Mm all of all of uh, human and earthly life.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in this particular passage, he's talking about the simulacra. Yeah. So this is where he's talking about the likenesses of things. This is the Latin term simulacrum, the singular simulacra, the plural. And it's interesting, he describes it like a film or a bark. Mm-hmm. So everything that exists is a material thing, no immaterial things. And they all give off a kind of a film or um, they slough off parts of their atomic, structure, I guess, yeah, and then these flow throughout the, the whole world, and um, he explains the senses this way, the sense of sight, he anticipates in an amazing way, I, I was looking for this article, I wasn't able to find it, it's on JSTOR somewhere, it was an article written by one of my uh, grad school professors, a man you know to whom I've paid homage several times, Jack Holtzmark, mm-hmm. he wrote a very penetrating analysis of the Lucretian view of the sense of smell, and he basically demonstrates, because he had interest in science and things, Oldsmark uh, did, that Lucretius got very close to a contemporary explanation of olfaction. Oh, yeah. You smell because little tiny molecules of uh, shredded mini-wheats, sorry, frosted mini-wheats, uh-huh. they work their way out of the bowl up into your nose, and they interact with the nose atoms, and there's a kind of a bond formed. Yeah. And uh, apparently Lucretius anticipated Precisely or almost precisely how smell works.
1: It's really striking. And yeah. it's through
0: these simulacra.
1: Yeah. So much wafting going on yes. in these
0: books. I was expecting at least a chuckle when I was talking about the <laughs> frosted mini weeds going up your nose, but <laughs> this is why you don't slurp, I guess.
1: No, exactly. It's just it's I'm it's giving me that the the shivers again. All right. We gotta move past that. Okay. Yeah. But no, he's he's very close to like even like a germ theory. Right. right. Um. He, he anticipates all of this stuff that doesn't really kind of come together until you know, two thousand years later. Yes. Yeah. It's crazy. Yep. Yeah. So he was, he he was onto these things. But I, I was also intrigued by this idea that he he says, um, you know, films are bark because the image bears an appearance and shape like that thing, whatever it is, from the body of which it is said to be shed and wander forth. So the, mm-hmm. these things that are sloughing off still kind of carry an aspect of the thing that they sloughed off.
0: From. Yeah. The atomic shape, something yeah. like that.
1: Which is in some ways. A kind of a Darwinian view, you know, a, a species evolved. It's it's different, but it's still like what it came from. Mm-hmm. And so, I it's
0: he's anticipating a lot of a
1: lot of a lot of stuff that's I, on tap right now. Right, absolutely.
0: Know? And do you think that maybe he's an he's uh, like Plato? I, I see you wanted to talk about this. Well,
1: that was um, we talked a little bit about um, you know what relationship does his ideas have to things like Plato's idea of the forms? Right. And this passage again brought me back to that. This idea that the things, the material world that we see around us, is a uh, kind of a through a glass darkly of some perfect form out yep. there. So that struck me is that you know the material sloughing off another object, it bears a likeness to the previous object. Mm-hmm. It's kind of he's he's taking the the concept of the forms, but he's completely secularizing it mm-hmm. and bringing it down to earth. So there's, no, there's no need for a kind of idealized immaterial perfection. Right. There is right. no immaterial. Right. And so, but, he's, but he, he seems to be kind of using the same kind of idea and language, but he's saying but it's really like this. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It just struck me in that way. Hmm. Yep.
0: What about dreams and images?
1: Yeah. Let's, well, let's, let's just read from the man himself. Okay. This comes from the Smith translation, which we've been using a lot as well. Uh, shall I read? Please. Okay. Uh, images are sort of membranes stripped from the surfaces of objects and float this way and that through the air. It is these that visit us when we are awake or asleep and terrify our minds each time we see the weird forms and phantoms of people bereft of the light of life visions that often make us start from our heavy slumber and tremble with terror. We must not imagine that spirits escape from Acheron, or that the shades of the dead flit among the living, or that any part of us can survive after death, when both the body and the substance of the soul have been destroyed and dissolved into their respective elements. I contend, then, that things emit filmy forms and images from their surfaces, and the proofs that follow will enable even the dullest wit to understand that I am right.
0: Well, we'll see about that. Yeah, there,
1: I mean, there's that uh, that pomposity there. Yeah. Like, you know, I can explain this to Pro- the, the biggest rube out there.
0: It's <laughs> a the prophetic invective. Right? Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So here, even dreams mm-hmm. um, are are material, and they're just ghosts. Ghosts.
0: We can't imagine that they're really people because those soul atoms have dissolved long ago. Mm-hmm. So what explains them? Uh, I guess it's the. It's the things that they emit, the forms and images from their surfaces when they were living. These things are still floating around. Floating around, but they they have no. There's nothing
1: human or or alive about it. No,
0: it's like a snake sloughing off its skin.
1: Right. I think he even uses that example later on, or or uh, he talks about cicadas doing the same right. kind of thing. That's what you're really seeing.
0: Do you remember seeing those as a kid, clung to the tree here yeah. in West Michigan? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, we call it a June bug. I called it a June bug. Maybe that's a different creature, but. That was an eerie experience yes, as a child. Exactly. You oh, think, yeah. Oh, it's an insect. No, it's a it's a clear or at least translucent f- shell of a former insect, still clinging to the tree. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, that that was odd and creepy. I still find it odd and creepy. So, what would Lucretius make of that? Um, well, he would say this is exactly what I'm talking about. So, think of um, a, a dream, you know, a, a phantom visiting you in your sleep. As the shell of a cicada, mm-hmm. um, it's it resembles the its previous form, but it's also it's also different. It's also, um, I mean, I, I would explain maybe a bit of its oddness and eeriness. Perhaps, right. um, but it's, says
0: in a spooky voice, "Drink the cereal." <laughs>
1: <laughs> right on, right on. Um, but yeah, he was. But he say that the you know, the idea that these are coming from. He, he mentions, you know, don't don't imagine they're coming from Acheron. This right. idea that dreams come from the underworld, which was a in, in ancient poetic idea, um, they're they're just being sloughed off like a snake skin. Mm-hmm. That's what you're seeing. That's what you're encountering.
0: But how does he explain phantasms, mythic creatures, the centaur, the hippogriff?
1: Yeah, he, he goes back to his kind of his key theory. It's again things smashing into each other and making oddities, mm-hmm. as it were. I thought this was this was really interesting. You want to read the Smith translation sure. there?
0: Right. Now then, listen and learn, while I explain briefly the nature and source of the objects that enter the mind and stir it to thought. My first point is that countless subtle images of things roam about in countless ways in all directions on every side. That's fairly comprehensive. Mm -hmm. (laughs) When these meet in the air, they easily become interlinked like cobwebs or gold leaf. They are far finer in texture than the images that occupy our eyes and provoke sight. Since they pass through the interstices of the body, stir the subtle substance of the mind within, and so provoke its sensation. In this way we see centaurs, the forms of scyllas, the faces of Cerberian hounds, and the specters of people who are dead and whose bones are embosomed in the earth. For images of every kind are moving everywhere, some formed spontaneously in the air, others emanating from various things and compounded of their different shapes. Certainly, the image of a centaur is not derived from a living being, since no such creature ever existed.
1: So he uses this as a way to explain uh, all those composite beasts that litter not only Greek mythology but uh, uh, Near Eastern mythology all yeah. over the world. Yeah, and he
0: takes the fun out of everything. It he
1: he really is a killjoy here. I don't—I don't like it.
0: How does he know for sure these things never existed?
1: That's a good question. I wondered about that as well, because I mean, if we follow this back through, that you know, these are all just sloughing offs of previous beings, could there be a gossamer part of some centaur still hanging around after thousands of years? I mean, he's not... Could you say that part again? What? I, I don't remember what I said. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Something like a gossamer part of some centaur hanging around after thousands of years?
1: Right. So, so, you know, thousands of years ago, there were centaurs, and those atoms are still floating around somewhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, he seems to explain it like, well, you all know that got some guy, ad- some torso atoms... <laughs> And slamming into a horse Some atom. Some
0: lower horse atoms. Lower horse, lower
1: horse atoms. And they produce this.
0: Smash together. Right. Like that terrible meme you shared with me of. What did I do? What's the best way for a centaur to wear his pants? Yeah,
1: exactly. Did you choose? Did you have a favorite? Oh,
0: <laughs> I'm a serious scholar. I can't get involved in. You
1: don't have time for that nonsense. No, right. pants right.
0: on centaurs.
1: Right. I believe the correct answer was, was choice D. Okay. Was, um,
0: Those that who are out. in the know. Yeah, right. So this explains all these crazy creatures. Yeah. A little bit sloughs off here, a little bit sloughs off there. They smash together and it forms an image, an impression uh, made up of these simulacra. And then they impinge upon our brains. Somehow. Hmm. Right. Um, But if that's true, how can I make up something like that on my own? Am I somehow grasping? You know, I've never tried to combine. Here we go. Thought experience. mm -hmm elephant and and flamingo i've never tried to do it but now i can
1: now you can there's but,
0: the pink elephant standing on one leg with a beak i got it in my mind right so how he, did that happen so he
1: would say that those that you're getting that into your mind means that those atoms have already kind of smashed together and but um,
0: how can i access it at will that's the tricky part
1: that's a good question yeah he's so quickly kind of he's so confident in he says you know i I've, I've proven this you know to the biggest dullard you've ever met right <laughs> and now let's move on to the next thing right he, it's, he a lot of the stuff he doesn't follow through all the way so you don't care for that i don't and of course it's the big flaw and we've talked about this is that nothing explains the movement mm-hmm. there's no prime mover they're just that's just what they do
0: mm-hmm. and have always done and have always done right the the part that i find ironic once again is the um attack on the traditional religion of his time mm-hmm. is so strong, but it's replaced with a, a missionary zeal, a fervor that's equally, in fact, you could say it's it's more devout and zealous than what any of his contemporaries uh, displayed. Sure,
1: sure. It, it reminds me of how, like, even in the the modern, uh, the contemporary kind of environmental movement, um, so much of...
0: Open... Can it alienate some people here? Winkle? Well, it, but, um Tread, tread, lightly, tread lightly, on, lightly on the grass. So I'm not, I'm not speaking <laughs> out
1: against environmentalists, but how that that theater can can um, can present itself with a kind of religious zeal. It's almost mm-hmm. kind of a Gaia worship without going as far as to call it Gaia mm. worship. Yeah. yeah. So, but you're, you're absolutely right. There, that is, a, there is an, a deep irony here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's a prophet.
0: Mm-hmm. So, how does Book Four end?
1: So, Book Four ends with stuff that we probably. We shouldn't get into great detail about on a, on a family-friendly podcast. No, I think so. No, so he he he, I mean, he extends the same theory down to explaining um, uh, procreation right. and conception.
0: So book four ends with love advice, yes. right? On how to conceive and procreate. So kids you may want to skip that part
1: right so yeah i mean talking about taking the fun out of everything i mean <laughs> yeah. it, it's it's quite
0: a mechanical description it is it's mm-hmm. right
1: and and cringingly so
0: yeah and now that i mentioned that all the kids are racing toward the end of <laughs> book four of on the nature of things it's got that off-putting title though Yeah. that would keep anybody keep anybody, from anybody away from taking, cracking that, that, taking book.
1: that book off the shelf right but um uh, let me read from um, Smith, the translator. He has some notes on that, I thought which kind of unpack this uh, quite well. I'd love to hear it. So talking about this this part in the, the, at the end of book four, he says, Epicurus placed sexual desire in his natural but unnecessary category of desire, which means that those affected by it must proceed with caution. Since its satisfaction brings physical pleasure, albeit a brief one, there is no reason to avoid it, uh, a pri- provided that it does not also bring pain. But in practice... It often does bring pain, especially if an emotional entanglement has developed. So the recommendation is either to abstain uh, from it altogether, or if one cannot do without it, to have it on a casual basis so that one gets the physical pleasure but avoids the mental pain.
0: Hmm. Uh, Again, that's so inhuman.
1: It is so inhuman, but again, it's a a nice corrective to um, the hedonism that's often associated with epicurus so right. you're
0: saying it's a corrective to the false conception the of false epicurus conception. Yes. right i got it yep. so people think epicurus well it's all drunkenness and carousing and right. in point of fact his position is quite a bit more moderate right? right so engage in sexual activity but you may want to avoid it because eventually you're going to fall in love with the person and these emotional entanglements bring the wrong kind of pain
1: right so it's a it's almost like a uh, a monk's existence mm-hmm. to some degree. I mean, it makes me wonder: if Lucretius had a wife, did he have children? Uh, what would he have thought of the concept of having children? Is that... I,
0: I think he references his wife in this passage. Oh, does he? he in a uh, fairly unflattering way, <laughs> if I'm remembering. Really? Something along the lines of, you know, you, you can love even a woman that's not very attractive. <laughs> if you know how to do it properly.
1: Right, right. So, and let me tell you, and I will prove it to you. <laughs> it doesn't matter how slow-witted you are. Right. Yeah.
0: On that note, let's go to the break.
1: This episode of Ad Nauseam brought to you by Ad Astra Roasters. Ad Astra Roasters is a veteran-owned specialty coffee roaster located in Hillsdale, Michigan. Founded in Kansas in 2018, Ad Astra Roasters takes its name from the Kansas state motto, Odd Astra per Aspera, To the Stars Through Adversity. Dave, this morning, I ground up and brewed up um, more of the Whitney blend. And you loved it. I, I'm, 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 it's growing on me. It's good stuff. Yep. Tender Brice is still my favorite. That's but, where I had two. But this one, I think I have five days in a row now with a Whitney, and I've really grown to like it. It's delicious coffee. It's good stuff. Lots of other things to choose from in the Odd Ostra catalog. Check it out. The Poetry Series is also a really great option for those wanting to read a great poem while drinking even better coffee. So listeners, head to oddostraroasters.com. And get 10% off when you put... No, 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 no. 15% off. That's right. Actually, that's even better. 15% off when you put in the coupon code ANAA, ad nauseum, ad astra, at checkout.
0: This episode of Ad nauseum is also brought to you by Hackett Publishing with offices in Cambridge, Massachusetts and Indianapolis, Indiana. Hackett has been bringing high quality translations and also original language publications to a mass audience for more than 40 years. Jeff, I know you're a great fan of Hackett. Tell our listener about some of the things that you like, please.
1: Um, I love how accessible the translations are. I love how affordable the translations are. My myth class that I'm teaching this semester, we just cracked open uh, Stanley Lombardo's translation of the Odyssey, which I have used for years. Um, it's got an attractive, beautiful cover with the, 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 the earth rise shot from the, mm-hmm. from, from the moon, you know, the ultimate journey, the ultimate Odyssey. Very clever, um, very attractive. And students, um, those who are new to to, to Homer, love it.
0: They cotton to it. They cotton to it. Yeah, it's really incredible. Yep. I like the fact that, as illustrated by this very episode, they have a broad catalog. Very broad. So we're reading from the Inglert verse translation of Lucretius, which is an excellent translation, and we're also reading from the Martin Ferguson Smith prose translation of the same work. That's right. The same is true in the Iliad of the Odyssey. They've got Plato by different translators. So it's a very broad catalog, and... You really have no excuse, right? If, if you're out there and you're thinking, I want to get uh, more knowledge of the classics, I want to drill down into it, here's your great opportunity to put together a really nice library inexpensively.
1: That's right. So, I mean, uh, go to their website, scroll through the catalog, and you'll see that um, I mean, tons of classical works, but it's uh, across the humanities. Yeah, modern and
0: contemporary philosophy. They've got Latin American studies. They've got East Asian studies. Yep. All kinds of stuff. So what should the listener do if they want to take advantage of... Hackett's generosity.
1: Well, they can go to HackettPublishing.com, H A C K E T T Publishing.com, H-A-C-K-E-T-T, publishing.com uh, find the text they want, and in the coupon code box, you type in A N two zero two one, and that will get you twenty percent off any order and also free
0: shipping. That's an incredible deal.
1: It is. Check it out. This episode brought to you also by Ratio Coffee. Ratio Coffee based in Portland, Oregon. Uh, Mark Helwig and his team out there, they've done it. They've um, offered a way for you to brew top quality coffee right in your own home on your kitchen counter with their machines, the Ratio 6 and the Ratio 8. Dave, you've got the Ratio 8. Tell me a couple things that you love about it.
0: Well, I love the fact that it's so consistent, right? If you have one of the lesser coffee machines, you might get a good cup of coffee now and then. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's really hit and miss, or I should say hit or miss. Yeah. The ratio is such a consistent machine. Um, it r- really doesn't allow for a lot of user error. <laughs> Let's face it, if, if user error is an option, I, <laughs> I'm going to commit some errors. You and I both, yes. Yeah, the ratio is not going to really allow for that very much. You need to grind the beans, you put them in the cone. You put it on there, not on the hot pad, but the nice, cool, extruded aluminum, beautifully designed place where you set the carafe. Yeah. You push the button, you got three stages, and uh, it creates such a consistent cup of coffee.
1: Yeah, very true. I have the Ratio 6. I look forward to it every morning. I love the weight of the carafe. Right. I love how that it keeps it warm for, for hours. Um, without the without the scorch pad underneath, yes. um, I can't say enough about it. Yeah. So, Dave, how can our listeners benefit?
0: Well, I want to say one more thing okay, about it. Okay, go him. ahead, please. Just yes. real quick. And that is, um, you know, I've owned a lot of coffee machines in the past. And uh, if someone had said, you know, you should buy something like the Ratio 8, I'm a guy that at first really would have balked a little bit at the price. Because, mm. uh, you know, it's it's not a... It's not something you pick up at the dollar store, no, right? No, definitely not. But I have no regrets because, you know, I'm going to use this coffee machine for 15 years right? minimum. I, I've probably gone through six or seven of those plastic ones because they just break so easily. Yes. It's a high-quality machine.
1: It is. And listeners, you can get a great deal on the Ratio 6. That's correct. Which is the uh, machine I own. Um, if they go to RatioCoffee.com.
0: Right, R-A-T-I-O-Coffee.com.
1: Put the... The,
0: uh, the the coupon machi- code. The cup- That's what you're looking for.
1: Well, I was gonna put the machine in your your grocery, grocery basket. basket. Yes, and you type in A N C O.
0: A N C O. That- nauseum coffee, and you get fifteen percent off. Do it. All
1: right, Dave, so as we get back into it, we're going to uh, move into book five. Just book five? Just book five. We've got a whole other book after oh, we got this a long go. way to go. We do. So let's get down to it. You're going to start us off with some hexameters.
0: I am. This is book five, lines 49 and following. Here's praise of godlike Epicurus, who's better than Hercules, better than Ceres, etc. Here we go. Heik egetur qui kungta <speaking in> sube geredex anemoque, expulerit dictis non armis nona dekebet, hunc hamenem numero di wam esse atquam nem rerum excellent very nice as always uh, thanks
1: yeah.
0: i tripped a little bit over this uh, dignariere yeah yeah it's it's not as bad as it sounds in the third line there but it's it. a um, it's an archaic present passive infinitive for those playing the home game
1: so lucas he's just showing off
0: dignariere come on come
1: on really yeah, after I read my lines earlier, I, th- I thought, yeah, maybe I should, I should challenge Dave to a hexameter throwdown. Let's do it. No, because you roll those R's, I'd I be finished after a line and a half.
0: Bring your guitar, though, and then you... Oh, exactly. Strum me under the table.
1: That's right. That's, we need some sort of kind of rap battle. But let me, let me offer a translation. I believe this is also... This is Englert? Again? Yes. Yes. Therefore, he who subdued all these things and drove them from the mind with words, not arms, isn't it fitting that this human be deemed worthy of being numbered among the gods? especially since he was accustomed to write many words well and in a godlike way about the immortal gods themselves and to lay open the whole nature of things with words.
0: Mm. Reference to the title, right? Omnim Rerum Naturam there. Yeah, the whole,
1: the really boring title. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A reference nonetheless. Yep. All right, so here's where Lucretius is starting to lose me a little bit. Um, More praise for Epicurus. Um, And in book six, there's even more praise for Epicurus. And it, it seems to be... I don't know. It's repeating himself. Uh, he's he seems to be, in my opinion, kind of losing steam at this point.
0: Um, what do you, What do you think is his purpose? Is it to try to make palatable to an unsympathetic audience someone that he thinks has a message really worth hearing, or is it just praise? Is it just uh, unbridled admiration? He can't can't control himself.
1: I don't know. I I mean, certainly, um, I think he wants the the listener to be. Charmed, moved by his his um, devotion to Epicurus and his teaching. And one thing that, that um I jotted down as I was reading this is that what is it is the point here? Is this just filler mm-hmm. at this point? Um, or is or is he kind of arguing something along the lines of do you say to the listener, Oh, you want gods, forget those gods that you know you you've grown up with. If you really need a god, this is your guy. So he's yeah. he's almost he's almost kind of taking the concept of gods and saying, Well, let's secularize it. Mm-hmm. If you want that kind of thing. This is your guy.
0: Yeah, I think that is probably the best explanation of what Lucretius is doing. Okay. For All sure. Right. Epicurus is someone who really deserves this kind of title. Given everything that we now know about the world, thanks to Epicurus' inquiries and wisdom and scientific investigation, mm-hmm. this is the guy that explains everything. Right. I wonder if we can find an analog, some someone whose explanatory powers, I guess really the, the leader of any kind of movement or... I don't want to say cult, but any any kind of really popular following. People are going to say that's the person you should really respect and instead of maybe the traditional ideas you've grown up with.
1: Right. Yeah. It's I mean it's very un mm-hmm. You he know, says my you know, I'm wise in that I I know that I right. I know nothing.
0: I know one thing, I know nothing. Right,
1: right. So Here is a you no. Know, Epicurus. Yeah, he's got it all.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So, what about the the place for human beings in the world? Where do they fit?
1: He crams in so much in these last books, okay. and it's almost like he's he's breathless, like he's running out of time and running out of space. And mm-hmm. and so we can't, listener, we can't even we can't scratch the surface here. Um, we're kind of picking and choosing.
0: And but, if, if we did scratch the surface, it would emit simulacra that would then flow out through the entire world right, and go up your nose, <laughs> go up your nose, and <laughs> collide with a centaur, most likely.
1: Right. Right. Um, so one of the things he talks about is, is again, he's kind of correcting this view that, you know, human beings are not a pinnacle of, of any sort of creation.
0: Right. They're not at the top of the food pyramid right. or they're, any kind of structure.
1: No, they're just another one of these conglomerations of atoms. So, again, so the Smith translation... To assert, moreover, that the gods purposely prepared the world and its wonders for the sake of human beings, that we should therefore praise their admirable handiwork and regard it as eternal and immortal, that it is sinful to use any means at any time to displace what was established by the ancient design of the gods for the perpetual use of the human race, or to assail it by argument and turn it topsy-turvy, to invent these and all other such conceits, Memmius, is preposterous, for what benefit could immortal and blessed beings derive from our gratitude that they should undertake to do anything for our
0: sake? Hmm. So this is in direct contrast with what Cicero will develop not too long after this in his work De Natura Deorum, right? Mm-hmm. On, on the Nature of the Gods.
1: Yeah, another lousy title.
0: Yeah, not so great. Yeah. Uh, it's a good Latin title, yeah. but um, bad English, yeah. as you're saying. Any, In, in any event... Uh, one of the phrases that he uses is that the world is created ad fructum hominum uh, deorum. Mm. The world is created uh, hominum deorum, qued, for the enjoyment of, of men and gods. Mm. So the, for the specific use, the, the fructus, it's a good thing for human beings that the world exists. and The gods made it like this because they care for us. Right. And Lucretius says, nope. No, it's absurd. What benefit could immortal and blessed beings derive from our gratitude? Now, there's a kernel of truth there. Right. And he may be reacting against the mercenary, something we've talked about before, the mercenary view that many uh, Romans and Greeks had about their relationship to the gods. They hmm. serve the gods, the gods give them something. Right. But he has ruled out the possibility of just plain old benevolence. Right. Maybe the immortals created the world not because they needed our gratitude, but just from kindness. And hmm. that, that doesn't seem to fit into his system at all no do, uh, you, do you only give things to your children because you want them to like you
1: um of course not
0: no right i mean sometimes i have base motives like that right you give your child something because you really want their gratitude and you're a little hurt if they don't say thank you but I mean, it would be a really cruel parent who would only give something to a child
1: exactly on that
0: basis right and these immortal and blessed beings are they more cruel than human parents
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. It, no, it's a, it's a tangled, it's a tangled mess. It's kind of that transactional view, that do ut des, right? Right. right. Uh, I give so that you give. Correct. We talked in an earlier episode. Uh, Lucretius does talk about the gods, but they're, again, there's the they're completely removed, distant, distant, and and uninterested, um, un, uninvolved. I always come back to that question: How is this supposed to comfort? me as a human being right how is this supposed to dispel my fear and my in my pain it doesn't do it for me Mm -hmm.
0: but so no creator no benevolent gods that uh you know want to do anything for us the gods are just like us but removed they have better atoms i guess that's basically it yeah and a a naturalist view of kind of like darwin of where human beings came from yeah they just arose naturally out of the ground and um lots of atoms Crashing around, crashing around,
1: right. Reminds me of that the monkeys and the typewriters thing, you know, right. That, right, right. Give enough monkeys, enough typewriters, enough time, they'll produce Hamlet or something right. like that, right. So you get an infinite amount of time and atoms um, smashing together, mm-hmm. yeah, you're gonna you're gonna get whatever you see, right. Yeah. So he goes on in this book covers all kinds of topics. He's you know, where did civilization come from? What's the origin of fire? Tools, um, animal husbandry, in the form and shape of various elements in nature, celestial bodies, geography, animals. Mm-hmm. Everything can be explained by this crashing atom theory.
0: Can you explain spirograph?
1: <laughs> I had a spirograph growing up. Did you have a spirograph?
0: I think we've talked about this on air.
1: Have we? I don't know. I love spirograph.
0: But can you explain it?
1: Um,. No one can explain the spirograph, right? Okay. <laughs> so one passage I found interesting was talking about the origin of language. Mm-hmm. And this it dovetails with kind of his, his argument. You know, human beings aren't so special, so get off your high horse, you humans. Right.
0: You want to read a little bit of that to us? This is Smith, isn't it? Yeah. I read the last one. Would you take okay. this one? Lastly, why is it so very remarkable that human beings, with their power of voice and tongue should designate things by different sounds according to their different feelings. Even domestic animals and the species of wild beasts, despite their dumbness, regularly utter distinct and different sounds according to whether they are afraid or in pain or full of joy, a fact that may be proved by familiar examples. When Molossian mastiffs, roused to anger, start to snarl and fiercely draw back their great pendulous lips to bear their cruel teeth, the menacing noise they make is very different from that when they bark and fill the whole neighborhood with their clamor. So, if animals, despite their dumbness, meaning their inability to speak, are impelled to utter various sounds expressive of various feelings, how much more natural is it that mortals in those early times should have been able to designate different things by different sounds?
1: So human speech is... It's like dogs barking. Dogs barking. It's a uh, horse's neighing. a bird's squacking. Mm-hmm.
0: I think it's pronounced squawking, isn't it? So I,
1: I use that term with my kids, squawking. Squawk? there's squawking, it's it's like an extreme oh, form of It's a of variation on the theme. Yes, exactly. Stop
0: your squawking. Stop,
1: stop that squawking. I got it. Like, like You know the difference between wrestling and wrassling?
0: A little bit. Okay,
1: so mm-hmm. it's, it's it's that's the finesse that mm-hmm. we we're going for there. So we don't need yeah. to dwell on it.
0: No, but speaking of animal sounds, since we're digressing a little bit, I was sitting outside the other day, and I heard this flap, 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 whack, whack, whack. It sounded exactly like someone hitting the side of the house with a pancake. (laughs) Really? Yes. (laughs) And then I thought, no, that's not possible. It's a neighbor taking a rug and whacking it to get the dust out. I don't know if anybody does that anymore, but people used to beat their rugs. Yes, they did. And this went on and on, flap, flap, whack, whack. And eventually my curiosity was aroused and I put my book down. I wandered closer and closer to the sound and I found out that it was a woodpecker who was drilling a hole in my neighbor's, the side of my neighbor's house. Really? Yes.
1: Wow. It, it, and uh, that strikes me, woodpecker wouldn't make like a pancake it's, it's, well, a more it like something. Well, it was,
0: pfft, no, no, it no? was because it was like, um, he was hitting something that was like a guitar, right? It had this hollow wooden resonance. Oh, and okay. So it was echoing really loud. Interesting. And, So strange. So strange. So not to connect this to Lucretius. Um, Is it so surprising that if woodpeckers can, you know, convey their feelings and sounds, their their flapjack whacking sounds, that human beings would do it? So we're nothing special. Nothing special. Right.
1: Right. And again, this is comforting how?
0: I I don't know. It's also, frankly, really not very persuasive. I'm prepared to believe that animals express certain kinds of maybe feelings, emotions, instinctual kinds of things. But to me, there seems to be a great chasm between a Mastiff being cautious about uh, an intruder and Lucretius writing a poem in Hexameters.
1: (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Uh,
0: I read this book by uh, Tom Wolfe a couple of years ago. Uh, It's called The Kingdom of Speech. Hmm. And uh, it's really kind of a, a takedown of Darwinism, surprising from Tom Wolfe. But he quotes um, one of Darwin's contemporaries, a man named Alfred Russel Wallace, who apparently is partly responsible for discovering the theory of natural selection. Mm. And um, one of the really interesting quotes in that book is uh, a criticism of Darwin's uh, theory: is that the the nature of speech is the is the rubicon or speech human speech is the rubicon that the the beasts will never cross mm. that's the theory so so wolf develops this idea right that human speech is so unique it's it's there's nothing like it and it's impossible to have come from the kinds of origins that darwin says it did ah, very that, that's interesting. my take on the story yeah. and on on the book and yeah. you know agree with it or disagree with it it seems really um, to touch exactly on what Lucretius is saying, right? He's saying, you know, animal sounds, human speech, they're on a continuum, so it's really not very surprising. Stop being so proud of being a human being. Right, right, right. And uh, this book's claim is no, they're really not on a continuum. They're a different in. Uh, kind, not just different in degree.
1: That's really interesting. Yeah, that's great. I need to. I need. I. I would love to take a look at that
0: book. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, Tom Wolfe is deceased. Yes. Else, we'd love to have him on the podcast. Well, that would have been amazing if we could swing that because he's a brilliant <laughs> writer.
1: Definitely. Yeah, but, but like I said, at this point in the the poem, Lucretius is moving so quickly and he's jumping from topic to topic that um, it's almost like he's the point is to kind of overwhelm his audience right. rather than to kind of say, "Oh, yes, I see how that argument is is so well reasoned," mm-hmm. right?
0: Well, let's get into Book Six and get on the downslope uh, to the end of the series on Lucretius.
1: Right, and you know how Lucretius starts Book Six. You know he starts
0: it with. Oh, I don't know. Could it be praise of Epicurus?
1: Yes, yes, he praises his
0: godlike nature of his discoveries. Yes, it's amazing. Yes. That now he... we can mock because yeah. it's fun, but this is this is a literary trope too. Uh, this has um, Alexandrian precedent. It's the, not. It's right. not as though Lucretius just invented it. He's following in the line of Callimachus and others. Right. But it's not an especially appealing trope, I
1: guess. No, I, I'm I'm allowed to be annoyed by it. Okay. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, so um, I don't want to I don't want to dwell on the particulars of that particular praise because we've we've looked at several of them uh, by now. But in this book, he turns to um, explaining meteorological phenomena. He talks about you know where does lightning come from? Where does where does thunder come from? Uh, you know, rid yourselves of these childish notions that a thunderbolt is the thing wielded by Jupiter. Uh, from uh, Mount Olympus or or what have you.
0: Um, Or what I was taught as a kid, the thunder and lightning is, you know, the saints or the angels are bowling.
1: I heard that one growing up too. And I believed it. Did you believe it? For a while. Right.
0: It's charming. Yeah. The sound of the pins and the balls crashing, Crashing. right? Somebody's bowling. Bowling up there.
1: They they, they love love to bowl up there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So... Again, we're going to just look at maybe one or two examples from this particular book. But yeah. what, what's really, again, striking is is the breadth of his knowledge. Mm-hmm. I mean, his, uh, he's, he's, uh, he's a botanist. He's a meteorologist. He's a weatherman. Right. Uh, he's, a, he's a historian. Right. He's got his fingers on so many different things. It's, it's, it's astounding. It is. Yeah. And it's
0: especially interesting because, a point we've made many times, this is all delivered in poetry. So serious science in antiquity... Has to be conducted in verse, you know. Right. Si- science is exactly. not science is not prose. You want to t- talk about something significant, you need to put it into uh, verse. Right. So Plato and Aristotle are kind of outliers in that category. Yeah. So d- does he explain Mount Etna?
1: I thought this was particularly interesting. So Mount Etna, a large, still very active volcano on the island of Sicily, it gave the the ancient Romans all kinds of trouble. Yeah.
0: Have you seen Etna?
1: I have. Ne- I've never been to Sicily. No, neither have I. I, I would love to see it. Right. I've cl- climbed to the top of Vesuvius. Mm-hmm. Um, another famous, still active volcano. Yep. But he says, well, what's going on there?" Again, so you know the old explanation. So it's Vulcan working at his forge. Right. Um, he would sneer. At the, That kind of thing. So let me tell you how it really goes. Okay, let's hear it. Let me just re- I'm just going to read a little bit of this.
0: This is Smith again, this right? This is
1: Smith, yep. I will now explain why it is that from time to time, fiery blasts burst with such tornadic fury from the jaws of Mount Etna. Who among us is astonished if someone contracts a fever whose onset affects the frame with burning heat or develops any other disease that pains the whole body? A foot will suddenly swell... Often a sharp pain tortures the teeth and penetrates right into our eyes. The holy fire breaks out and creeps over the body, inflaming every part it attacks as it crawls across the frame. So I thought this was really interesting. Again, he's kind of say, he's saying there's a continuum, not just with speech from you know from animal to human. There's a continuum from volcanoes right to So the humans. natural
0: world and human beings are on the same spectrum. Right. So different, you, different parts of the spectrum.
1: Your your feet swell up with uh if you get gout. Isn't right. that what happens with gout? You swell yes. with your
0: foot. Right. Yeah, you can get gout in a number of different places. Yeah,
1: but he says if your 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 nose swells up and right. and you know, burst forth with right. it's it's nastiness, how is that any so different? So that's Etna. That's Etna.
0: The world's blowing its nose. Exactly.
1: Right. So again. Not convinced, but an interesting (laughs) idea, and 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 consistent with his other stuff. Very consistent. It also struck me as a very again Eastern idea. This idea that if you want to kind of you understand the self, look to nature, Mm -hmm. um, live according to the patterns of nature because they reflect kind of the deepest perfection inside of you. Hmm. There's that kind of that weird kind of cross cultural thing happening once again.
0: Right. Yeah. Which could be explained by actual contact. Right. Or it could be explained by. Human beings everywhere have great similarities, so mm-hmm. their ideas are going to be expressed in similar ways. Right. So as we're wrapping up, we get down now to the Great Plague of Athens.
1: Yes, which is what the, his text ends on. Although there's there's question about uh, missing pieces, right? In, in the data, we don't have the full no. text, right? No. Nope. But this is the surviving text ends with talking about the Plague of Athens.
0: And this is taken from the historian Thucydides. Yes. Of course, Thucydides, who is the chronicler of the Peloponnesian War. Right. The great conflict between the Athenians and her allies and Sparta and her allies. That's
1: right. So Dave, you want to read a little bit of his passage on the plague? David? Yeah, I
0: do. Um, maybe here near the end, such was the epidemic. This is the concluding part. You think that's a good place to start? Yeah. yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Such was the epidemic. Such was the deadly miasma that once fell on the land of Kekrops, fancy way of saying Athens, mm-hmm. making the countryside a scene of death. Emptying the streets and draining the city of citizens, for it originated in the heart of Egypt, and after a long journey through the air and over the floating plains, eventually brooded over the whole people of Pandion. Then they were delivered by thousands to disease and death.
1: So again, there's that kind of proto-germ theory. These these bad, the bad air is is floating up from Egypt and descending upon
0: uh, Mm -hmm. the people of Athens. Right. Fomites fomites. You familiar with fomites? No, what's fomites? Oh, uh, well, it's a Latin word, fomites fomitus. It's a tiny little body. Fomites are those germ bodies actually. Mm. It's another word for a germ body and that's why we're using all of this, you know, hand sanitizer, right, you know, right. by the 55-gallon drum. Yeah, yeah. Lucretius anticipated that.
1: Right. So, uh, again, there's the it's not a punishment from the gods. Um, this can be explained again in these these uh, atomic terms right. right
0: materialistic naturalistic ways so
1: i thought it would be kind of a nice way to wrap this up is to again from smith's introduction where he right. he unpacks this a bit because it is kind of a uh, if you read the text it's it's kind of jarring like well, why does he end this whole yes this whole thing here it's
0: a little shocking and right. if we have any hardcore epicureans in our listenership in our audience which i kind of doubt we do i think we said last time stoicism has had quite a renaissance yes in the 20th century. I I don't think that Epicureanism has, but if we have some of those, you know, they might be a little disappointed that we, we went through these last books so quickly, but go read the book. Go read the book. Yes. Right.
1: Take it as an invitation.
0: Right. Tell us yeah. what you think. we, we might revisit some of these themes later. I don't see it happening anytime soon, right. <laughs> but there, there are still some nuggets in these books that are very interesting. That's right. That's so right. can you share with us just some of that final quote from Smith as a as to close out this series.
1: Yes. So he writes, Lucretius represents the plague not only as a physical calamity, but also as a moral one. The plague-stricken Athenians living before Epicurus's remedies were available, were philosophically as well as medically unequipped to deal with this situation of extreme adversity. There's the further point that the Epicureans were fond of representing the unenlightened as diseased or plague-stricken. And there can be little doubt that the condition of the plague's victims symbolizes for Lucretius the moral condition of those ignorant of Epicurean philosophy. So the account of the plague does not reflect the poet's pessimism and despair, which, you know, a kind of a straight reading would say, this ends on a really dark note. Yes. So Smith's saying, no, rather the prospect of salvation and of a heaven on earth, which Lucretius offers, shines within a brighter and stronger light on the account of his dark and hellish picture of what life is like without the guidance of Epicurus.
0: Hmm. Uh, really well said, and I'm sure sound in terms of its scholarship. Yeah. It doesn't really make me like epicurus no. or lucretius anymore
1: right i'm not sure i fully buy a smith's explanation
0: which is that it's not supposed to be pessimistic all the grim suffering of the plague is supposed to make us like epicurus more because see what he can save you from
1: i think that's what he's saying mm. yeah all right okay Bye. so well on that note <laughs> <on that>
0: no <note, laughs> we got to get out of here yeah that concludes this series doesn't it it We're does gonna wrap it up so um we got some things to do, don't we, before we say goodbye here?
1: We do. Uh, I believe you'd like to say something about the Moss Method.
0: I would. I'd like to say that uh, we've had two uh, sessions of our Friday office hours, yeah. Friday mornings, and uh, we've had people coming in from all over. Uh, we've talked together about Homer, about Aeschylus, of course, the Moss text. We spent a good deal of time last week on a passage from Philippians chapter 2, the really interesting first few verses there. So we had about you know a dozen people show up each time, and uh, if you sign up for my course, The Moss Method for Greek, Expert, Self-Paced, Accessible, then you get this, this feature. On Fridays, you can meet up with me, talk about anything, any aspect of Greek you'd like. Could
1: they talk to you about the podcast?
0: I suppose, but only if they've listened to it. This is for Greek, Jeff. Oh, sorry. Okay, and, and Not everything's about the podcast. You said you know? anything. I said
1: anything, so I didn't
0: anything Greek. <laughs> <Okay>. Come on. <laughs> the right. right. Omnibus Greikis. That's what right. we can talk about. So gotcha. if you'd like to join us, we'd love to have you. Go to mossmethod.com. Uh, sign up for one of the modules. It's, uh, I think it's a good value. And then we can see you on Friday during office hours.
1: Sounds great. So listeners, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform. Leave us a review. Yeah,
0: we'd like that very much. Yes. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't like.
1: Give us ideas for future episodes. Right. Drop us a personal note at Dave at Don't forget the V or Jeff at Also, don't forget the V. We've
0: been receiving some great listener mail. We, it's been We wonderful. enjoy that. It's so much fun. Such a supportive audience.
1: Dave, what's on tap for next week?
0: Well, on tap for next week is we're going to do a takedown. This is really exciting. Of the Latin state mottos. Oh, I'm. A, so for any any of the states in the U.S., if they've got a Latin motto, we're going to take them down. We're
1: going to take them down. Oh, I'm looking forward. To it. This is going to be fun.
0: Yeah, we're going to mock the motto of the state of Michigan. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> and maybe if we get real creative, suggest some alternatives. Yes,
1: excellent, excellent. That'll be fun. Can't wait.
0: So tune in for that. We also want to say thank you to a number of individuals. Yep. First of all, of course. Uh, Miss Mishka Fernando, who makes the podcast hopefully a, just a, a good listening experience. Yes. She's, you know, fiddling with all those knobs, doing all the editing, doing some great work. Thank you, Mishka.
1: Yes. And also thank you to um, the wonderful musicians, Ken Tamplin and Scott Vinzen for the great music you hear throughout the show.
0: Right. And the narrator, Brian DeYoung, the voice oh, of the yeah. Ad nauseum podcast who, you know, gets us started there. Right. All right, so Jeff, you have the gustatory parting shot this week, and uh, this is kind of tenuously connected to the theme of Thanksgiving, isn't it, like I promised at the yes, beginning? Yes, you
1: now I see what you're talking okay. about right here. So this comes from a, uh, a text by Janet Clarkson called "Pie: A Global History. Now you say a text? A text.
0: This is like a textbook? This is something I could assign in class?
1: Yeah, if you're teaching piology, right? <laughs> exactly, this is a, is a, a primer. Sounds
0: yeah. like my kind of book, frankly. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. Uh, she writes... There is a type of pie strongly associated with Scotland, which has aesthetic and health dangers that justify its inclusion here amongst the sinister pies.
0: Sinister pies?
1: <laughs> there's, a, there's a whole group of these. Apparently, yeah, well. Right? It is the fried pie.
0: You had me at fried,
1: <laughs> which is just what it says a baked pie cooked a second time by frying. Oh, it sounds delightful. Scotland is not called the land of the brave. For nothing.
0: Thanks for listening. Thanks.